0: Mr. Josh Hammer, welcome to Atwood Unleashed. How are you doing?
1: Hey, I'm doing well. How are you?
0: Yeah, wonderful. Thank you very much for asking. Um, Maybe you could just start by letting our viewers and listeners know what keeps you busy. How would you describe your work?
1: Sure. Yeah. So I wear a lot of different hats. I'm the senior editor at large for Newsweek. I was formerly the opinion editor there for three years. I've shifted over this year to focus on my own content. So I also host my own show which is a podcast and now also in radio trying to boost our terrestrial radio presence here in the US as well just called the Josh Hammer Show you can get it wherever you get your podcast Apple Spotify iHeart and so forth I'm also a syndicated columnist through creator syndicates my columns go up at Newsweek and any number of other right of center publications I'm a fellow at a couple of think tanks I I, I do a lot of speaking on university campuses things like that so I, I typically find ways to keep busy as you can tell.
0: I'm going to ask the really important yet obvious question up front, Josh. Why didn't you call your show Hammer time?
1: <laughs> you know you're like the hundredth person who's it's said not that. original um, <laughs> no 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 but like you're not wrong necessarily but what i but, but what we have done is over the past Uh, three four months or so we've started this segment a concluding segment to finish the show maybe like a five to seven minute segment that we call hammer time and that concluding segment of the show is essentially rapid fire i rip through a few headlines typically talking about kind of woke excesses culture war stuff and i just blister through it and you know typically get fairly hot and emotional so that's kind of the hammer time segment on the show
0: Excellent. Glad to see it's incorporated somewhere. It would have been a tragic waste, yes. Otherwise, but maybe you could just explain a little bit about Newsweek. what would you say the remit is? What's the focus? What are the aims? Does it have a particular p- political leaning? Well, Newsweek,
1: as you obviously know, is, a, is an iconic American journalism brand. I mean, it was literally founded in the depths of the of the New Deal back in the time of FDR and the fireside chats in the nineteen thirties. That's as far back as it goes. It's been tossed around owners over the decades for about a half century, from 1960 to 2010 or so. It was owned by the the Washington Post, and the company went through a, a couple of unfortunate mergers. And around 2017 or so, was almost on, on on the brink of extinction until the new ownership came in. So, right now, the CEO is um, someone who w- was from India, but he was uh, he was raised uh, primarily in the UK. His name is. Dev Pragad, he's a wonderful man, and he's really kind of taken Newsweek away from the brink, really kind of instituted or implemented, I should say, a lot of new reforms there. So Newsweek's brand, this was kind of what I was tasked with when I was heading the op-ed section for three years. The brand right now is pluralism. The brand right now is a genuine diversity of views. Newsweek, if you go to the very bottom of the website, you can literally click the mission statement. It's right there on the bottom of the actual website. They are explicitly telegraphing that they are trying to speak for the full diversity of Americans, which is very rare in the mainstream media space. Obviously, there's virtually no one else, at least when it comes to the American mainstream media, who is doing that, again, as the guy who was tasked with, uh, you know, fulfilling a, a a balanced an ideologically balanced opinion page every day for most of the past three years or so. I, I can tell you that we're really doing that. Um, Newsweek really does publish a number of high profile conservatives, in addition to liberals, of course, liberals are going to submit everywhere. The challenge, the challenge of your Newsweek is getting conservatives. That was kind of what I was doing. And, and we're still doing it. Um, You know, Donald Trump actually published an op ed with Newsweek just last week. Um, That's not every week that happens, obviously, but it's just a high profile recent example. So um, we're not we're neither conservative nor liberal. We're genuinely across the spectrum. I myself um, do not hide the ball. I certainly am a conservative myself.
0: Let's let's talk a little bit about the culture walks. it's something I've been fascinated with the longest time. I've, I've been well, you know, embedded in the trenches in the UK on this issue, and there's been a lot of crossover with uh, American issues as, as well. I was actually on a panel about a fortnight ago in uh, for Battle of Ideas, a uh, big debate in conference in the UK. And the, the title of the panel was, Are the Culture Wars a Distraction? And there seems to be, I mean, there seems to be some sort of advance on the culture. I think it first started with people denying it even existed or it was a real thing. Now we're asking, is it distracting us from the important, important stuff? So, I mean, what, what are the some key issues that you can look at it from the, an American perspective and say, these are the main issues being fought over in the American culture war?
1: So right now, I mean, over the past few years, you've certainly had the rise of gender ideology. You've had the rise of LGBT and the transgender movement more generally. That is, I think, one of the focal points of the American culture war. I mean, it is is obviously debated whether or not a a man or a woman can truly, quote unquote, transition into someone of of the opposite gender and then be just treated as such by the law, by sports organizations by anyone and everyone that matters i think that that is a huge huge touchstone in the american culture war so to speak and by the way i'm not a, i'm not actually a huge fan of the term culture war i just use it because most other people use it it isn't necessarily how i would how i would phrase it but that's obviously one issue another huge issue of course would be the rise of of, of critical race theory and what ibram x kennedy and robin D'Angelo would refer to as quote-unquote anti-racism more generally this would be the uh, they would like it to be the successor to the old school opposition to racism. The, the Jr. MLK famously said, "Judge me not by the color of my skin, but but but, but the content of my character." By contrast, the anti-racists like Ibram X. Kennedy explicitly say that the cure for past discrimination is current discrimination, and the cure for current discrimination is future discrimination. Um, in the, here in the U.S., we had. Uh, those dueling conceptions of the American regime and the idea of constitutional colorblindness that really kind of went to a head in a landmark Supreme Court opinion we had back in June ending affirmative action in America. So that, that I think that's a huge, huge current cultural touchstone. And then two other issues that come immediately to mind. Of course, there's the abortion issue. That's been one of the major American culture war issues, so to speak, at least since 1973 when the Roe v.ersus Wade decision was handed down from the U.S. Supreme Court. So we finally had the end of Roe v.ersus Wade in June 2022 in the Dobbs decision. And now we're almost a year and a half. Yeah, wow, it's crazy, almost a year and a half after the Dobbs decision, and That issue is now playing out at both the federal and the state level here in the U.S. Previously, it was taken away from the political arena because the court had constitutionalized it. Um, And now it is back in the political arena. So that is actively debated in many of the states. Now states are voting on laws, referenda, all of the above. And then, of course, um, immigration. I mean, immigration is one of the massive, massive culture war issues. really just one of the massive issues in general facing American politics because immigration, of course... And frankly, the lack of anything remotely resembling border security here in the United States over the past few years or so has tangible ramifications for virtually all areas of American life. It is um, it is something that affects. The economic space, it affects the the cultural space. I mean, it affects obviously who we are, who comprises the body politic, what language we speak. It has tangible ramifications for national security, um, especially at a time like this, where the jihad, the global jihad is now emboldened in the aftermath of the tragedy of October seventh. So it, it, it's a massive, massive issue right now. And I think it's going to be a huge issue as well in the upcoming presidential election.
0: Yeah, definitely want to get into immigration because I'll be honest and upfront, the American immigration is a, 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 an area I'm not well versed in, so I'd love to get your opinion on it. One, one final thing on this sort of uh, cultural um, critical race theory and the, the main chief lieutenants that you've already singled out of Kendi and Robin DiAngelo. I, I read right uh, white fragility and it, it, I couldn't I couldn't quite believe how vapid it was. I assumed there'd be something to grapple with there, but it, you know, it's I'd, I'd recommend anyone. Uh, to read it, just to get an idea of just how vacuous it is. But do you not know, think it's really strange that those individuals who are kind of the chief instigators of this movement, in in a sense, refuse to debate their ideas in public? Yeah, I,
1: I mean, look, many of these folks would prefer that their beliefs simply be accepted as dogma, simply be accepted the same way that you know Moses did Descending from Mount Sinai with the tablets from God. I mean, that, that's kind of how they view their ideology. Um, obviously, they strip God out of it. They're, they're pretty pagan. But other than that, the parallels are pretty similar. They, they think of themselves as simply offering an, a new orthodoxy that should go unchallenged. Look, personally speaking, I mean, I always relish the opportunity to debate interlocutors coming from a different perspective. I, I actually thoroughly enjoy it. I, t- I tend to think that it sharpens my own arguments. So I'm, I'm, I'm actually a lawyer by background. I, I went to law school at the University of Chicago, and I recall fondly my experience is there debating, you know, center left, liberal, far left, whatever have you classmates, because that's how you learn what the opposition believes. And that causes you to rethink your own arguments to get better arguments. It's very healthy. I mean, there's a reason, of course, why debate and free speech goes back 1000s and 1000s of years, all the way back to like the Greek Academy, right. So I I personally like it a lot. But um, we all too often find that these types do not like to debate. That's why you see in American college campuses and I'm sure they're in the the UK as well. I'm sure you see many instances of those who offer a different viewpoint being protested or all too frequently being actually shouted down themselves. That that happened to me actually recently. I was speaking at the University of Michigan about three weeks ago now on the conflict in Gaza between Israel and Hamas. And there were about 25 pro-Hamas protesters who shouted down my remarks within Two to three minutes of starting. This went on for 35 to 40 minutes before I was able to finish my remarks. The university administration, the campus police who were there on site did absolutely nothing whatsoever to secure my right to free speech under our First Amendment to the Constitution. It was a totally shameful incident there, but that is the way that that is fundamentally. The way that they like to behave that evinces the kind of the broader truth I think that these moral credence are not interested in intelligent discussion they're not interested in discourse they're not interested in the battle of ideas they're not interested in the marketplace of ideas or anything like that rather they simply want their own garbage to be imbibed like mother's milk and taken as a new reigning orthodoxy.
0: You just reminded me of something there as well, actually, because I I agree with you. I'm very um, attuned to this idea of no platforming. You know, I'm I'm a big subscriber to the idea that sunlight's the best disinfectant, and I I really kind of resent somebody making a decision on my behalf who I can see uh, and listen to. I think I think that's one of the main issues with it. But you just reminded me. I mean, there's a lot of clips going viral on on X, formerly Twitter, at the minute of uh, hearings where. Representatives for sort of Harvard and I think MIT and perhaps another are asked to confirm or deny whether or not the call for genocide against Jews constitutes a breach of harassment policy at their universities. And it seemed to me that the resounding answer from this pe- these people was was no. Now, I just wanted to get your opinion on how tricky this sort of thing is, because obviously, from a moral and ethical perspective, the, the answer clearly is yes that's abhorrent and probably you know should be penalized really however does that fly in the face of first amendment protections where where do you draw the line in terms of voicing an opinion and, and incitement where does it cross over into illegality
1: right so uh, th- this hearing was just appalling i mean you had the presidents of, of harvard mit and, and university of pennsylvania just repeatedly refused to say that that calling for genocide of the most persecuted genocide of people in human history is sanctionable conduct on, on their university campuses. Bear in mind, of course, that Harvard, Penn and MIT are routinely ranked as three of the top universities in America. They're usually in the top 10 in the U.S. News and World Report rankings. I mean, just just galling stuff. And, and the way, by the way, that these presidents comport themselves at this congressional hearing was also just absolutely outlandish. I mean, watching them just smirking. I mean, President Claudine Gay of Harvard, Liz McGill of Penn, it, just this ridiculously wry smiling. They pause. They seem openly disdainful, supercilious. The the whole thing just stink to high heaven. And, and personally, I, I just cannot imagine being a, a parent of someone who was cutting a paycheck to send your child to one of these schools and then seeing this performance and then waking up the next morning to sign a new bill. I'm not sure how you're supposed to Reconcile that one in your head. So when it comes to the free speech issue, there's a few things going on here that kind of get merged together. So there is the First Amendment right to free speech. There is also university codes of conduct. Now, these are these these are two different things. And especially a private university, which Harvard, Penn and MIT are not a public university, a private university can absolutely unequivocally impose a slightly more draconian code of conduct. Uh, above and beyond essentially what the first amendment even 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 an absolutist perspective on the first amendment which itself is somewhat debatable but even that you can you can essentially go above and beyond that with a code of conduct so when it comes to Harvard and Penn their student codes of conduct as most do explicitly forbid they explicitly ban bullying and harassment now we can debate in kind of the finer points of Supreme Court jurisprudence whether bullying and harassment are First Amendment protected speech. The way that usually works is that you do not you do not have a First Amendment right to incite violence, to imminently incite an insurrection, to imminently incite a riot in a crowded theater, things of that nature there. But regardless, these private universities are allowed, are allowed to ban bullying and harassment. And I'm sorry, but I don't, you know, if calling for intifada, which obviously means mass genocide of the Jews, if calling for gassing the Jews, exterminating Jews, if calling for this is is not bullying and harassment, then I honestly have no idea what is. I, I, I truly do not. And another point worth making here is that you have to think, what if this speech, this same speech was being said about blacks. What if this same speech was being said about transgender individuals or gay individuals? Well, I mean, you and I both know the answer to that question, obviously, is that anyone who was calling for open genocide or a or, or return to slavery or Jim Crow or something like that for the black population, they would be suspended and or expelled. And rightfully so. I would hope that those people would be expelled because that sort of speech Again, I, you may or may not have a free – a first-man right to say it on a, on a First Amendment sidewalk. That doesn't mean that it is proper conduct for someone to say or you know, chant from the top of their lungs while strolling across the friendly confines of Harvard Yard in Cambridge, Massachusetts. So these are, these are two separate issues, I think, and I thought that the way that they handled themselves at this hearing was absolutely disgraceful.
0: Yeah, no, I agree, and that's a, that's a very good summary. But uh, just swinging back to immigration, there, because you, you you're talking about sort of border control, and then I think you you mentioned jihad as well, and obviously the risk of Islamic fundamentalism is the is the kind of chief concern when it comes to global terrorism. And you know, there's a there's a debate to be had there as to how much immigration plays a part of that. It's certainly, an issue in the UK uh, for sure, and, and other parts of Europe. But I'm just thinking with you guys, I suppose the main Uh, form of illegal immigrant would probably come over the Mexican border. It doesn't necessarily strike me that Mexico has, you know, a sort of Islamic fundamentalist problem you should be too concerned about.
1: So you'd be a little surprised, first of all. So Hezbollah specifically, the Lebanese organization that is just an Iranian proxy, it's a Shiite militia militant Islamist organization. Hezbollah has been around for a very long time. Hezbollah actually operates all throughout the Western Hemisphere. So, you know, back in the 1990s, when the Jewish institution in Buenos Aires was blown up, it was a horrible tragedy. That was an Iranian Hezbollah operation. Hezbollah also, over the past 10 to 20 years, has really kind of embedded itself very closely with many of the transnational drug cartels and human trafficking rings that transport people from northern South America. So that would be the countries of, of, of Venezuela, Ecuador, around there, as well as Central America. Hezbollah has become very, very friendly with a lot of these leading cartels like Jalisco, groups like that, that, that control large swaths of, of northern Mexico. So there actually is, even taking on its own terms, there, there actually really is kind of a stronger Hezbollah radical Islamic presence throughout this part of the world than many people realize. Also, you know, we actually know from CBP, Customs and Border Protection data, I think the number was there were 159 people that we know were stopped at the border in the last fiscal year for which we have numbers who qualified for what uh, i'm trying to remember the exact term i think i think they're referred to as special interest aliens which is kind of u.s government speak for people trying to cross the border who are on an, a terror watch list of some sort so that, that's 159 if i recall in the last fiscal year who were just stopped there and we know from year in year out data that you know, for every X number of people who are actually caught at the border, there's Y number of people who managed to slip in between the border crossings and managed to infiltrate the interior of the country. Then you add on top of that the fact that FBI director Christopher Ray, I think was at a hearing on Capitol Hill earlier this week or the end of last week, I think it was actually earlier this week. He was talking about how everywhere he looks right now, he sees flashing red signs, how there are many signs that Al-Qaeda and ISIS right now are trying to activate potential sleeper cells, both in the American interior and along the U.S.-Mexico border, probably in response to them being emboldened due to the Hamas attacks of October 7th and the war in Gaza right now. So I, I, I see a lot of problems right now, even even from kind of a, a militant Islam and, frankly, just terrorism perspective. That, of course, is one of, you know, that's only one of the many reasons why the the poorest state of the U.S.-Mexico border is, I think, a, a major, major problem when it comes to American politics right now, but even taken on its own terms, I, I I do think that we cannot underestimate the the threat of terror the threat of terror uh, coming across that southern border.
0: I mean, what? How did the uh, figures look in terms of illegal immigration during during Donald Trump's term? Because he gave a big, you know, talked a big game about building a wall and, and reducing it, and used some you know very strong language in that regard. Did he actually achieve anything in that regard? So the actual numbers ebbed and flowed. I, I mean, he definitely
1: did not shut off illegal immigration. In fact, during 2019, there w- there was a huge surge in in the spring summer of the year 2019. I remember because I was writing a lot about it at the time. Uh, the numbers during that four year stretch are definitely lower. I mean, for sure than they are now. I mean, the numbers that we're seeing crossing the border under the Biden administration, under DHS Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas, who was just absolutely horrific at his job these numbers right now, completely Trump, no pun intended, what we saw under the Trump administration. But no, I mean, of course, Trump was not like a like a one man wrecking ball. He was not a panacea to, to fix the border. I mean, he campaigned, he campaigned, of course, in 2016, on building the wall. That did not happen. I mean, we built um, a, a, at the absolute most, even the kind of most aggressive estimates of of how much mileage of wall he built would be between four and 500. In reality, it was probably a lot less than that, because that's including a lot of mileage that was simply reinforced, not new wall constructed. So he definitely did not, you know, fulfill that campaign promise. And I, I think that would, an understatement, frankly. I mean, the, the border is as porous as ever. And that's not necessarily his fault. He, he he did some things and he was undermined by a lot of people there. But ultimately, he did not fulfill that promise. There's just no way around that. So he could have gone further in a lot of ways. I was one calling actually for more unilateral action there. I think that there were some clever ways to kind of lawyer your way, uh, even when Congress was not giving him the laws that he wanted to. But it, it, the, the point is that it was not perfect then, but it is a heck of a lot worse right now. The numbers that we are seeing on a quarterly basis, on an annual basis under the Biden-Harris regime are just substantially, substantially worse than really any prior president, even including Barack Obama.
0: Would you put this failure of the Democrats then to get handle on this issue? Is this uh, just a case of just sheer incompetence? Is it a case of unwillingness to deal with it, perhaps the more sympathetic to the idea of illegal immigration than, say, uh, the Republican Party would be?
1: Yeah, I think they're deeply sympathetic to the idea of of illegal immigration for multiple reasons. One is that, I mean, you have to remember kind of at a 35,000 foot altitude level, at a a kind of broader philosophical level, the global left increasingly does not actually believe in the concept of the nation state. I I mean, that's overstating it a little bit, but it's really not overstating it that much. I mean, we see this everywhere. I mean, as you and I are talking, there's this Climate change boondoggle junket going on in 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 Dubai in the UAE. It's COP twenty eight. It's this global climate change summit. You know, John Kerry over the weekend, our completely dimwitted idiot, uh, former presidential candidate, currently moonlighting as a special envoy for climate change, he was over there in Dubai just shooting from the hip, calling for the global end of all coal plants around the world. Well, I mean, I I mean, like, who the heck is John Kerry to try to dictate coal policy in sub-Saharan Africa, Indian subcontinent, wherever? I I mean, it's just, it's just ludicrous. And the reason I bring up that example is because I think it does kind of shine a broader spotlight on the far left mentality, which is that national sovereignty, national integrity doesn't matter, that progressive elites ought to make top-down hegemonic policy and impose that all throughout the world. And You do see, I think, that kind of lack of respect, indeed, kind of that willful desire to erode national sovereignty, to trample over our borders. I think you're seeing that play out as well here. Other things happening as well that I think is kind of whether subtly or explicitly factoring in. Another thing that you have to bear in mind here, over the past, call it 15, 20 years, in this millennium for sure, the the Republican Party in the United States used to be the party of the Chamber of Commerce, used to be the party of big business. I mean, Calvin Coolidge had this quote when he was president from the Roaring Twenties, the 1920s. He didn't exactly say it; it's a bit apocryphal, but he roughly said the business of America is business, and that has just totally changed over the past 15, 20 years as these woke culture war issues have really pervaded into the Fortune 500, into corporate America in general. The Democrats, but really are the party right now of corporate America. They are the ones I think who want to kind of satisfy the CEOs, satisfy the C-suite. And what that means in concrete terms is bringing in a heck of a lot more cheap labor. So I think there's that factor going on as well. Then the final factor that I think you have to bear in mind here is, uh, and this kind of goes back to the whole Ibram X, Kennedy, Robin, D'Angelo stuff. I, I, I genuinely do think that a a lot in the democratic party and on the American left right now, hold the idea of america in such dripping disdain and and they hate the fact that this country was initially founded by uh, by by brits i mean i, I mean by white um, anglo-saxon protestants by by male wafts. they they hold that in such utter disdain that they want to essentially apologize for the alleged sins of those who preceded them hundreds of years ago by flooding the borders and trying to kind of make this country less white. I mean, that might sound a little conspiratorial, and I'm not entirely sure that that is actually what's going on when people are sitting down to discuss public policy, But every so often, you actually do see them kind of let it slip a little bit and actually say that they hate the fact that America was founded by mostly white men, not exclusively white men, obviously. And I think that that racial component, unfortunately, is probably playing a bit of a role here as well. I am of the opinion that race here, there and everywhere has no role whatsoever in public policy. Um, I am a staunch proponent of of, of colorblind public policy. So this troubles me a lot, but I think it's probably where they're coming from
0: yeah though the problem is Josh the uh the principles of Martin Luther King or invoking them as a white man is considered a racist microaggression now so you may wish to uh check your privilege I'm afraid <laughs> no it's true
1: I mean it's it, it's it's really wild but I mean the again the ebrahim Kennedy formulation which is that the remedy for past discrimination is current discrimination and the remedy for current discrimination is future discrimination that is eons apart, not just miles apart, that is light years apart from the famous Martin Luther King exhortation to judges by the content of her character. I mean, it, it's crazy stuff. I mean, I was out in St. Louis just a few weeks ago. Again, I do a lot of these campus talks. I was speaking to the uh, SLU, the St. Louis University chapter of the Federal Society, which is a national legal organization here in the U.S., primarily for center rights, law students, lawyers, judges, practitioners, and so forth. And I was speaking on colorblindness, and I basically just made the straightforward argument. I traced the history from our Declaration of Independence all the way through the 1960s and all the way up into the affirmative action decision of the Supreme Court this past summer, essentially arguing that America was never perfect and still is not perfect, but we have incrementally every step of the way sought to better fulfill our founding era vision. And a lot of the liberal students who attend this talk were just simply not having it. A lot of kind of, you know, vacuous rhetoric about systemic racism and things like that and you know uh, ultimately there's only so much i can do as one individual to persuade these people but it's really sad to hear such ill-thought-out perspectives
0: yeah and it's really worrying isn't it i suppose because i mean it's coming almost at an indoctrination level this kind of yes you know appalling regressive ideology that's being sold to us as anti-racism we have I mean, in terms of America and, and the UK, I, you know, things aren't perfect, but obviously the line of progression on race relations and race equality has always been on on the up. And, uh, I mean, I don't know where we're comparing it to, if we're to say that it's a failure of yep. uh, kind of inclusion and um and uh, race relations. But I'm just wondering, how how do we explain to this younger generation who, who are having this pumped into their mind 24-7 that we're living in a white supremacist nation, everything's institutionally racist? How do we better get across to them that uh, we've always progressed, especially, you know, in light of the last 40, 50 years, et cetera?
1: You know, I don't have a great answer to that, unfortunately. I, I wish I did. I mean, look, we can show facts, we can show empirical data, we can show any number of statistics demonstrating that, you know, what what, what uh, the de- what the demographers typically refer to as URMs, underrepresented minorities, we, we can whip out any number of statistics to show them that they are better represented in XYZ fields than they were 20, 30, 40 years ago, which, uh, you know, not my exact area of expertise, literally getting into that you know precise level of social science data, but my understanding is that it's broadly speaking, it's fairly true when you look at kind of the leading institutions of business law, politics, journalism, media, Hollywood, and so forth there. The problem, the problem is that we're dealing with some people for whom facts are somewhat impervious. They are impervious to facts and they are impervious to logic. What I personally find far too often when I am engaged in a situation like this is that you you can literally just tell an A plus one hundred percent authentic history description of something, and they actually literally will just kind of wave their arms and just you know it's right over their head. So I mean this happened to me a few weeks ago at Michigan at the event where I was speaking on the conflict in Gaza, and I was shouted down. The part of the talk, again, it was right it was like right after I started, it was like three minutes in at the most that they started and. It, by the way, what they first started doing was they started coughing, like
2: <laughs> hmm. b-
1: b- before then, like just chanting. So it, it was all planned out. But the part that they started disrupting was not a particularly volatile part of the talk. I was giving a fairly dry history of the 20th century in the region, starting with the end of World War One and the Sykes-Picot Agreement and the European powers carving up the Middle East into the modern Middle East. I
0: was talking about, like, treaties and international law and Latinate language. And, <laughs> well, and- Josh, I, I, I'd love to – I mean, I, I, it's my fault. I've, I've instigated a conversation about the history of the area of Palestine and Israel in the last minute just before we've got to get our, our next guest in. But I'd love to – I'm sure we'd love to have you back at some time for a, a longer chat. But is there anything else you'd like to point people towards before I let you get back to what's left no, of your day?
1: Uh, my apologies for filibustering there. Um, No, I this is, this is this has been a lot of fun. You can go ahead and follow me on Twitter, Josh. underscore hammer Instagram Josh B Hammer and then my show is the Josh Hammer Show, Apple Spotify, wherever you get
0: your podcast. This has been a pleasure. Thanks for having me. That's great, Josh. Lovely to speak to you. Take care.
2: If you're looking for a gift, my new book, Sit Downs with Gangsters, is available worldwide on Amazon. We've interviewed over a thousand people now and we selected ten of the hardest hitting stories to go in this book. Each chapter features the story of one of our podcast guests. Those stories are Shane Taylor, Knife Maniac's Redemption. John Elite, Mafia Hitman for the Gambino Crime Family. Joey Barnett, 35 years in UK prison. Ian Blink MacDonald, 6 million pound bank robber. Chet Sandu, Asian smuggler in Spanish Supermax. John Lawson, the hit team commander. David Macmillan, International Smuggler's Thai death row prison escape. John Abbott, San Quentin prison shootouts and escape. Michael Francis, Colombo crime family capo portrayed in Goodfellas, and Wildman, English enforcer in Arizona prison. Link in description box on YouTube, available worldwide on Amazon. Also, my next book, Untouchable Jimmy Savile, is getting published in December 2023. So check that out as well. It will be available worldwide on Amazon. Thank you for listening. Cheers.